This is Quinquagesima Sunday. Um, these, these few weeks right before Lent with the really fancy Latin names. It's really not that complicated. It's just counting down towards Easter. So if you have a quintet, how many guys are singing? Five. Sept for seven. Quinn, um, we're the Sunday that's closest to 50 days till Easter. That's really all it means. About 50 days out from Easter. Um, thereabouts, the Sunday closest to 50. Um, and so um, we're in sort of a pre-Lenten season where we're, we're starting to fix our eyes upon the cross, um, but we're not quite to, uh, to Ash Wednesday, which is this coming Wednesday. Um, and so there's a, a shift in tone, um, but it, it's sort of preparatory that, that gets us ready for Lent. It, it's, it's a wonderful, wonderful thing that sort of helps transition uh, out of Epiphany and into to Lent. Um, our gospel lesson for this day is uh, Luke chapter 18, verses 31 to 43. Uh, we'll read that, but we're going to be working um, also out of um, our epistle lesson. Uh, so I'll read that too. Uh, Luke 18, 31 to 43, it reads, Taking the twelve, Jesus said to them, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and everything that is written about the Son of Man by the prophet will be accomplished. For he will be delivered over to the Gentiles and will be mocked and shamefully treated and spit upon. And after flogging him, they will kill him. And on the third day he will rise. But they understood none of these things. This saying was hidden from them, and they did not grasp what he was said. As they drew near to Jericho, a blind man was sitting by the roadside begging. And hearing a crowd going by, he inquired as to what this meant. And they told him, Jesus of Nazareth is passing by. And he cried out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And those who were in front rebuked him, telling him to be silent. But he cried out all the more, Son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus stopped and commanded him to be brought to him. And when he came near him, he asked him, What do you want me to do for you? And he said, Lord, let me recover my sight. And Jesus said to him, Recover your sight. Your faith has made you well. And immediately he recovered his sight and he followed him, glorifying God. All the people, when they saw it, gave praise to God. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So as we deal with this thing, um, we have to recognize there's a confusion, isn't there? All the way through in, in this one singular story. Because it really is only one story. We, we sort of imagine it's two. It's, it's Jesus telling them something and then a healing. But this is all of the same source. But there's confusion in both parts, right? Where's the confusion in the first part? Right. And this is the third time that he has explicitly told them in the Gospels. Um, so that, that doesn't even count the times that were not recorded for our edification. Um, this is not new. It's just they still can't quite get their head around it. There's this man begging um, by another Gospel. His name is Bartimaeus. And the crowd does what? Try to shut him up. What don't they understand? Yeah, this is, in fact, Jesus is here to bring mercy. This is, this is a good thing to be crying out. Um, I think a lot of it um, actually comes from our misunderstanding of the epistle lesson, which is uh, 1 Corinthians 13. Uh, do you know that chapter? What's that chapter? The wedding chapter. Perfect answer. That is, um, yeah, let's read it. 
If I speak in tongues of men and angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all that I have and I deliver up my body to be dirt burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. Love is patient and kind. It does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part, and we prophesy in part. But when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. But when I became a man, I gave up childish ways. For now we see in the mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. So now faith, hope, and love abide. These three, the greatest of these is love. And we hear that and immediately think about ourselves, which might not be a great place to start. Um, you said this is the wedding chapter. Um, you're, you're absolutely right. And, and absolutely wrong on purpose. Not, yeah, you know what it is you were saying. Um, in fact, if you want to start to understand this chapter, every time you see love, think Jesus. And the whole thing starts to clear up. I'm not saying change the scriptures. I'm saying understand what love is expressed as. For God so loved the world that it looked like something. What did it look like? He loved the world in this way, that he gave his only begotten son, right? Love looks like something. Is love a feeling or an action, according to Corinthians? It's an action. How's that different from how we want to talk about it today? People always make it a feeling and not an action. And so when we talk about love, we're really good at talking about either infatuation or lust. Both of them. All heart. All internal. Love is external. And this is really the difference. If, if this is something that is internal, it's going to look very different than what Paul is talking about versus if this is external. Because you can be infatuated with somebody, and then it's really easy to be patient for a little while, right? Why? Well, because nothing they're doing is bothering you. More so with lust. I mean, truth be told. Um, well, when we want to dictate these things as our guiding principles, our, how we feel, well, what happens when we don't feel lust anymore? We feel lust towards something else. What happens when infatuation wears off? It starts to look real different. And so the wedding chapter only works until we got to find a divorce chapter. Which, of course, if you want to find it, is Jesus saying, that's a bad idea. Yes, I realize that it was allowed, but nothing good has come from it. Um, but when we want to talk about love, insert the word Jesus, and you'll start to be able to process it and approach it a little bit more appropriately. 
If I speak in tongues of man and angels, but have not Jesus, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have all prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and knowledge, if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but have not Jesus, I am nothing. If I give away all that I have and deliver up my body to be burned, but have not Jesus, I gain nothing. Does this sound more like our religion all of a sudden? Jesus is patient and kind. Jesus does not envy or boast. He is not arrogant or rude. He does not insist on his own way. He is not irritable or resentful. He does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but at truth. Jesus bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Jesus never ends. As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. Does this all of a sudden change it from how to behave? Now, I'm not saying that these are not Christian and godly virtues, to be patient and kind, to not envy or boast. They are, in fact, things that we are to do. But here's the thing. Where do we get them that we might do them? Again, this is a question. Is love internal or external? If love is internal, I've got to come up with it myself. Where do I find patience? And we can practice it. Like, really, we we can practice it. And that's a good thing, to practice being patient. Where do we find endurance? You, you practice it. These are good things. But at the same time, if you want to look to the heart as the source of all these things, at the end of the day, the thing that guides you will actually never be your neighbor's need. It will be your own ability. And if it's about you and not your neighbor, it gets a little harder to fit the word love into it. However, if these are gifts of the Holy Spirit given to Christians to practice outwardly for your neighbor, we can look outward for the help, outward for an example, and outward for a law to guide us, and then outward for the sanctification that would do it in us. But really, mostly what we look for then is our neighbor who needs our help. Because here's the thing. Can love exist without being expressed? That's the real question. Can love exist without being expressed? You're saying no. Love, by its very nature, must express itself somehow. And so if love is just wholly in your heart, I don't know. It gets trickier. However, if love, love starts somewhere else, well then, we can paint a different picture. What is the love of the Father? For God so... That he did what? What is the love of the Father expressed as? Good. Um, What is the love of the Son expressed as? Dying on the cross? Good. What about even just the acts of mercy? As, As he sees. He sees a guy blind and begging, and Jesus has mercy. What are the what's the love of the Spirit expressed as? That's where it gets trickier, right? Huh? What it, so I can find the expression of the Father, the, lo- the love. I can find the, the expression of love of the Son. Where's the expression of love? The Holy Spirit. What? Good. Good. Love. Sanctified. Made holy. Made holy. Yeah, sanctification is the expression of love. That God would pour forth himself to you in word and sacrament to actually do something for you and to allow you to serve your neighbor. 
without fear or shame or guilt or any of these things. Holy fixed upon them. Um, faith, here's the thing. Faith is never alone. It, it always has love and hope along with it. That's, that's the epitome of our formula of conquered. Faith is never alone. And so when we want to start talking about, you know, do Christians have to do good works? There, that might be a better place to start. Instead, what's the bare minimum I have to do to prove to you I'm a Christian? Simply express, if faith is accompanied by love and hope, well, love expresses itself. And so when it comes across our beloved, our neighbor, it can't but do good works. See, when we want to root this thing in what God would do through us, and mostly what God would do for us, all of a sudden it stops being something you have to check off or accomplish or do. It's always God working through us. Um, and, and there, it becomes proper praise. Do you have questions? Are you kind of with me so far? So let's pick up our gospel lesson then. Luke 18, Jesus tells his 12, I'm going to go up to Jerusalem. Always up. Why always up to Jerusalem? For, it's, it's on a mountain. It's, 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 it's geographically up. Why else? Find for me the pinnacle of our religion. The mount. What? That's the holy city. That's where the temple used to be. That's where our Lord ripped it down brick by brick and rebuilt it in three days. Always up to Jerusalem. Because Jerusalem is, is where heaven is ripped open. Do you have to go there now? How come? Huh? New Jerusalem's right here. I like that. What do you mean by New Jerusalem? Right, it is not only you, the people, but he, he actually brings the place to you too, right? Why do we gather here in this room on Sunday? It's cold here. Why here? This is where God promised to bring himself to us. Where? Be more specific. Where two or more are gathered in his name, where? There, in word and sacrament, sacrament of the altar in his word and promise, in his baptism. We don't just gather to talk about Jesus and say how great it is to be not there with him, but wishing that we were. We gather here because he is with us. It's not that as long as two Christians are hanging out together, God must be there. Where two or three are gathered in my name. What's God's name? The name of the... That's an invocation. That's how we start our divine service, and that's also how you are baptized. Where two or three gathered, baptized together, that's called a church. The church does something. Preaches God's word, truly. It administers his sacraments, rightly. That's what the church is. And of course God is there. Um, when, the, when the new Jerusalem is here, it's a recognition that this then is the place where God would pour forth love to you. That this then is the place where salvation is, is, is delivered to you. This is the place of sacrifice. Where is the sacrifice? It's, it's where the cross is. And this is where the cross is given to you in word and sacrament. New Jerusalem is good. I like that.
Um, do you have questions, concerns, comments? You got anything else for us, Pastor? All right. Um, so we have an expression of love all the way through um, this gospel lesson. What is the love shown in the beginning parts of it? Uh, Luke 18, 31 to 33. So let's go. Taking the twelve, he said to them, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and everything that is written about the Son of Man by the prophets will be accomplished. For he will be delivered to the Gentiles, and will be mocked, shamefully treated, and spit upon. Um, and after flogging him, they will kill him, and on the third day he will rise. Where's love? Yeah, it's, it's in fact on the cross. Why is Jesus going to Jerusalem? This isn't a curveball. He knows. Right. So here's the, when we want to talk about the love that God has for us. Because if Jesus is, is saying, so that I can die for you and rise again. If your Christianity, whatever form it is you want to approach, has the cross as incidental or accidental. In other words, it just sort of happened or who knows why it happened. You're missing the point. Love is, is chiefly expressed in this way, where Jesus was crucified. And so for Lutherans, then, justification becomes the chief article, the article upon which the church stands or falls. If Jesus dying on the cross and rising again isn't the point, your point is wrong. And your church won't stand. I'm not saying you can't get a lot of people or a lot of money. There's a lot of religious organizations built on stuff other than justification of Jesus for sinners. But why doesn't it stand up? What? Christ is the cornerstone. I can't hear you over the heater. I'm sorry. Yes. They're going to fall by the wayside. Does that mean that people will stop coming? No. Maybe after a while, but you can probably get new ones, right? I mean, let's be honest. Are the biggest churches in America Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod? No. Are the oldest churches in America Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod? No. So let's start by... It's not that I'm surprised that there's any other denomination still in existence today. If only people saw what I know and were as smart as me, they would have left a long time ago. Uh, their own stupidity is the only thing keeping these doors open. Stop saying that. That's not true. And if that's the beginnings of your thought process, it, it can't be. Yes, the, these doors might rotate a little bit faster, and I, I truly believe that they do. That the people in the biggest churches in America usually aren't the ones there for 10 years or 20 years. They're there for maybe a few months, and they try it, and it didn't work. But that's the thing. That, that's where it starts to fall by the wayside. So what's right at our doorstep on Wednesday? Lent. Ash Wednesday. Why do we have to have a Lent? What do we say on Ash Wednesday? You are dust, and to dust you shall return. So let's start here. Are you going to die? Like, I know it's not a fun thing to talk about, but are you going to die? Is there, is there, in fact, something wrong with this world? Whatever word that you want to put upon it. Because there's lots of religions that have undone the, the very nature of sin, or at least tried to. Let's not talk about it. Let's say that, you know, it might have been true back then, but it's not right now. Let's say, you know, sin is whatever doesn't make you feel fulfilled or happy or empowered. Um, let, let's completely, you can do it any which way you want to. But are you still going to die? 
What will save you from death? That's why. At the end of the day, yes, you can keep a building open for a long, long time until the last day. You can make lots of money off of people by promising them things in the name of God. Whether or not they work, you'll still get paid. The real question is, can it actually endure what is wrong? There, the gates of hell will not prevail against the church. So yes, it will endure. The difference between a church built on ourselves and our works and a church built on God's work isn't going to be measured in how old the building is or how many people are here, but what's given. We need to recognize that people have gathered around idols for a long time, really since the fall. They will until the last day. What endures is that which conquers death. What endures is that which actually addresses what is wrong and delivers forgiveness found from outside of ourselves. That's why we do what we do here. Because I can speak in such a way as to sort of sugarcoat the problem until you're not so worried about it, but it doesn't make it go away. You can have a doctor that will never actually tell you anything's wrong, but is that a good doctor? I want the doctor that tells me the truth and then tells me how to get better and then gives me what I need so that I can get better. The church is built on justification. And so if if love expressed in the church isn't Jesus for sinners, then that love is misplaced or misguided. And we see that today a lot. When we don't want to call something a sin because we don't want to offend somebody, we don't want to drive them out, we want to be accessible to the world. I understand the temptation. If people are too angry to hear us, they will never hear us. But here's the thing. If you're not willing to call a thing a sin, you're not willing to say Jesus died for it. If your best mission to the rest of the world is, um, Jesus didn't die for the things you need him for, I don't know what you are. You're not the church. If you've got just a whole big list of things that are offensive, so you don't want Jesus to die on them for, well, I thought your religion was a cross. And so we call things sin. Is it to drive people away? It's to actually find an answer for them. We're not calling this sin to say you can't be here, but to say these are the things that are wrong, but these are the things which Christ died for so that you can be here to receive him in word and sacrament. Do you have questions? So that's love. Starting right here. Jesus dying on the cross for sinners. Where's love in verse 34? They understood none of these things. The saying was hidden from them, and they did not grasp what was said. How many times has Jesus told them this? This is the third time that we have in the scriptures. Probably more before that. I'm with you many times. Um, So what does he do when they don't understand it? Take, huh? Perfect, Dan. Shows them. Has mercy. That's good.
the growth in knowledge? I would. Um, so sanctification is, is holiness, right? Um, and holiness actually does produce fruit. Apple trees make apples. And so we can find in both tables of the law a, a love that, that expresses itself. And I can say it's, it's easier to do it in the second table of the law, right? Um, it's so easy, in fact, that, that Christianity often sort of gets pigeonholed into Jesus died for you, now be good. But at the same time, um, is coming to Bible study a good work? What's, what's the second commandment? You shall not misuse the name of the Lord your God. What does this mean? We should fear and love God so that we not curse, swear, use satanic arts, lie or deceive by his name, but call upon him in every trouble, pray, praise, and give thanks. In other words, we should think of God's name as so precious that we don't abuse it because it's powerful and it does stuff, but we actually should use it the right way. How do you know what's the biggest way to break the second commandment? This is where the devil's done such a disservice to us. He, he did it on purpose, too. He thinks that he has taught us somehow that the way we break the second commandment is to stub our toe. Wrong. The biggest way we break the second commandment is to teach false doctrine, is to lie about who God is, to misuse his name, to misrepresent him, to say, God is God because I'm doing this thing, or God would never do this, or the God that I believe in could never say this is a sin. That is breaking the second commandment. I, would, I don't want you to use God's name when you stub your toe. But at the same time, the far greater evil is to lie about who he is. However, God wants us to use his name properly. How do we learn to use his name properly? Well, we come and learn to use his name properly. It starts very young. Pray this way, our Father who art in heaven. It grows so that as we start to struggle with bigger issues, we would have bigger answers. Yeah, growth in knowledge is absolutely sanctification. Um, because here we're learning more about the God that we love. Um, that, that's, that's a wonderful thing. Um, love is expressed, however, not to the people who have earned it by knowing enough things in this verse, but by Jesus not abandoning us because we don't. So in the same way that we would say, you're not a Christian because you have been a good person, but because you were baptized, I would also say, you are not a Christian because you have all the right answers to the theology test, but because you were baptized. Does Jesus abandon the disciples because they get the answer wrong? No, he chose them. And eventually they get it. And in the same way, Jesus calls you to do good works. Does he kick you out every time you don't? No, he works in you, and eventually you will. God has prepared good works for you to walk in them. He did it before the foundation of the world. You're going to do it. I'm sorry. You don't have to like it. You will love it because you're Christian. But, but he will get done what he needs to through you. Um, the love is expressed, again, towards sinners. Christianity is not for the intelligent. Jesus says, let the little children come unto me. It's good to learn about these things because the devil will tug at us away from it because sin is always focused inward. Unless we have something coming from the outside, we get wrapped up in it because death is ever-present as an enemy to be afraid of. 
it's good to learn these things. But Christianity is not for those who have memorized all the right answers. So here's the thing. We'll hold that thought in the same as the next love. Because the next one is easier to find. In the rest of the verse, how is love expressed when Jesus heals the blind man? When Jesus heals the blind man. Was it a good thing or a bad thing that he was blind? Bad. So what did Jesus do? Had mercy so that he would not be blind anymore. Is it a good thing or a bad thing to not know your theology? Bad. So Jesus has mercy and teaches it to you. The goal is never that we remain in sin, always that we be pulled out of it. Never that we remain dead, but always that we be resurrected. Pastor, see something. What do you see? I think that's a different one. Right. Why was it? There's another one. Why was this man born blind? Who sinned, him or his parents? Yeah, that's the one. It's so that the glory of God would be manifest in him. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. That's perfect. He, the blind guy sees better than all of them because he's actually willing to go to God in, in need. He's actually willing to, to look for help outside of himself. And so we can take the end of 1 Corinthians uh, and say, so now faith, hope, and love abide, these three, but the greatest of these is love. Faith, internal or external? Is faith internal or external? Perfect. It's external for one because it's brought to us. It comes from the outside in because it's the Holy Spirit who through the gospel gives it to us. What's our faith in? Something internal or external? Better be external. Otherwise you have faith in yourself, faith in your faith. None of those help. I need faith in God because Jesus is the way and the truth and the life. Faith is external. Hope, internal or external? Hope is by its nature external. Love, if it has to express itself, can it be internal, external? Our confessions would tell us that um, in old Adam is the opposite of faith, hope, and love. In the old Adam is um, misbelief, false security, and stubbornness. Misbelief, internal or external? Wholly internal, how come? It's what I think. Misbelief is by its nature the stuff that I think. And if I'm told in the gospel, and I choose to believe otherwise, even if I'm mistaken, that's an internal thing. Is that a good thing or a bad thing to have misbelief? Do it anywhere else in the world. Is it a good thing or a bad thing to have misbelief that, that you're putting diesel in your car instead of regular gas, or gas in your car instead of diesel? Don't be wrong. It will cost money. I'm just saying. False security. What's the problem with false security? You feel great about it. Well, is false security internal or external? It's wholly internal because I feel good. What's the problem with false security? Even though I feel good, it's not going to work good. You can have false security in heroin. It will make you feel good. What's the problem? 
It won't, you want more, and it's not going to fix anything. It's only going to make things worse. You can have false security in your own works. You'll feel great about yourself. That's probably a sin. It won't work. And then stubbornness, internal or external. You know what the difference between... See, this is, there's a difference between stubbornness and steadfastness, though. I mean, it's a subtle difference, because both of them are saying, I will not change, right? To be steadfast, though, is to be what? Huh? <laughs> it's not just right or wrong, because you can be stubborn about being right. Now, I, I mean, huh? Let me do it this way. What's the difference between trying to win an argument or trying to help somebody? That's the difference between stubbornness and steadfastness. To be stubborn is just, I'm not going to lose. Whether right or wrong, I'm just not going to lose. To be steadfast is to grab onto something true outside of yourself that is so true and good and pure that it actually wants to help your neighbor. There's a difference between trying to win and trying to help. And that's probably the biggest problem with how we express our theology in the world around us right now. Um, the, the problem with having all the right answers is that it makes it really, really easy to wallop a Baptist. It does. You have the scriptures, you have the confessions, you have all the right answers right in front of you. And so if you want to actually just win an argument with somebody, I mean, they can be stubborn and just say, I refuse to yield, but you'll win. Is winning necessarily the same thing as helping? No, it's not. You can win an argument. You can say the right thing in such a wrong way that somebody will be so turned off to it they won't hear you anymore. Right? To win is not the same as help. And we see this even just in... Uh, Lutherans have a distinction between law and gospel, right? So to somebody who's just absolutely broken by sin, they're, they're, they're contrite, they're, they're terrified of hell, do you preach law or gospel? Why? Because gospel actually brings comfort. The, the comfort of Christ crucified for them, that they would no longer be uh, afraid of hell, but find joy in the, the salvation given in Christ. Would it be right or wrong? Could you win an argument by laying on their sins all the more to them? You would win. Just kick them while they're down. Because I'm actually a really big fan of beating a dead horse. Like, maybe you shouldn't shoot it, but like, I'm a big fan of beating a dead horse. Um, <laughs> you can win. It won't help. You need to be winsome in the same way. To somebody super secure in their sins, who's doing terrible things to everyone around them and terrible things to themselves, should you just keep saying, you know what, don't even worry about it. Here's more gospel. Or should you preach the law? The law. Because sin breaks stuff and it's bad. Yes, Jesus died for it. But that doesn't make, that, it, that doesn't make the sin good. It makes it atoned for. If I never, ever, ever tell you what you're doing is sinful, will you like me more? Yes, you will. You will. That's not necessarily helping, though. You don't tell the heroin addict, good job, buddy, keep it up. They'll like you more. You help. To be steadfast is, is an external thing. To be stubborn is an internal thing. Um... Are you kind of with me on this? Love is by its nature external. From the outside in. It's focused back out too. When we want to make theology, religion, faith, all about our heart, our feeling, our hope, 
You can have the greatest feelings in the world but can't share them. I'm serious. This is why I don't like testimonies. Your personal testimony about you know, how God worked in your life. Um, that's cool. Don't get me wrong. But does it help your neighbor? Let me do it this way. How many people in that crowd probably also had at least something wrong with them? Even though the blind guy is the one begging for mercy. How many of them got help? If you want to do it by a personal testimony, a praise is, look what I am now because of Jesus. That doesn't actually help anybody who didn't get that. However, if you want to say, look at who the son of David is, all of a sudden, there's something I can lay hold of. Because it's great if God has given you money, but if he didn't give me money, I mean, you guys have raised more than one kid at a time. They're, they're super happy if the other one gets a gift and they don't, right? All the time. That's how it works. If, if your three siblings all got something and you didn't, you feel super thrilled for them? Yeah? No? Oh, that's why I don't care about your testimony. I love you. Um, but tell me about your baptism. Tell me about your Savior, not yourself. Personal testimonies sort of fall apart in this way. Um, they still do them. You know, every once in a while, they'll have a school assembly. Um, and, and so they'll have, you know, like a power team in, and it's a whole bunch of bodybuilders. And they come in, and they, they, like, they rip the phone book in half and say, stay in school, kids. Don't do drugs. And if you want, come back tonight. We're going to have a, a special assembly at like 6 p.m. We can't do it right now because it's school day and church and state and all that. But at 6 o'clock, they'll tell you that it's Jesus that lets them rip the phone book in half. And I say, cool. Can I rip the phone book in half? Guess I'm going to hell. What's the problem? You're basing it on yourself, your works, instead of your God and where he works for you. That's why we talk about baptism. It's where God works for you and for your neighbor. That's where we talk about the nature of Jesus. Um, because all Christians have needs, but God somewhere has to meet those. Are you with me? Do you have questions or comments there? All right, so um, when we talk about this, we need to take that need, but we also need to meet it with that present God. In other words, um, we talked about, you know, it's a good thing to know theology, right? But is, is Christianity found in study alone? Who knows the scriptures better than you? The devil. I mean, honestly, there's going to be atheists that know it better than you, which you should not feel great about. You should work on that. You should come to Bible study. You should learn more. That, that's a good thing. It gives you actually an answer and a help to them. Instead of just even winning an argument and proving them wrong, you might even be able to show them where some peace is because they got problems too whether they express it in anger or shame or bitterness or anything else. What we should be is not about winning arguments with people on the internet, but simply being those whom Jesus died for, who have the answers to give to others in need too. Is, is it found in fellowship alone? Just a whole bunch of people get together once a week and say, we're the Christians. Is there a whole big crowd together in our gospel? Are they better off or worse off for being part of a crowd? They yell at a guy for singing the Kyrie. I'm just saying. The fellowship alone is not make Christianity. And so you can have a Christian bowling league, and that's fine. Do it. 
But is that Christianity? You know what makes the Christian bowling league worth going to? The fact that when you look at everybody else there, you can say, hey, we're brothers and sisters in Christ baptized into the same God. You can even do it just in found by being needy. Um, There's a guy here in need. Well, there's a whole bunch of them. Every last person in that crowd is some kind of sinner or another. Some probably even have their own disabilities that that they're wrestling with too. The reason this guy stands out is not because he's blind. It's because he does what? He begs for mercy. He sings the Kyrie. He knows who his God is. He has heard, because that doesn't come from his heart. That comes from outside in. And he sings, have mercy on me, son of David. Lord, have mercy. Christ, have mercy. Lord, have mercy. It's not just pain or sin that makes you a Christian. In fact, those are the things that, without God, make God harder to approach. And by that I mean, without an understanding that God is willing to bear your sin and your pain himself a right understanding of what God's love looks like. Because this is one of the first big questions that anybody who wants to deal with a higher power wrestles with. If there is a good God, why does it look like this? Right? Everybody thinks they've just totally proven religion wrong by asking that question. When it's like they never once considered that maybe we've been wrestling with this problem as long as there has been religion. The answer is found in the cross. Why does it look like this? Well, because we broke it. But where is God when we break it? Whoop. We're good. Fixing it. He's dying on the cross and rising from the dead. That's why he's going up to Jerusalem. To bring heaven down to earth to forgive sinners. Any questions? Concerns? Comments? So, remember there is a distinction in Jesus dealing with the twelve between before and after Pentecost. God hid them. It wasn't time yet. And so even after he is raised from the dead, he says, wait here until you receive the Holy Spirit. It it wasn't time yet. There's a, a difference between Peter in the Passion and Peter on Pentecost, right? It wasn't time yet. Right now, they were to still be underneath Jesus because Jesus was with them. But when Jesus was taken from them, the Spirit would be given to them, and then they would bring Jesus to other people. Um, and, and so, again, this is also why you don't go knocking the disciples. Um, it's really easy to take pot shots at people who open up themselves and lay out their, their most humiliating moments. Um, and they do that in the Gospels. But recognize there's a, a plan and purpose behind this. It, it's God who hid it from them because it wasn't yet time for them to be the ones preaching it. It was theirs to to wrestle with it and then to see it so that when they go out to do it, to express it, to to deliver it to other people through word and sacrament, they can start to piece these things together. Um, And and yeah, it was very much on purpose Um, because, again, this is not sort of everybody take what you have learned and go out and make disciples for Jesus. I hate making disciples for Jesus. You know why? I couldn't call, I couldn't, I mean, if you can't choose Jesus, how are you going to get somebody else to? I can't, by my own reason or strength, believe in Jesus Christ, my Lord, or come to him. What's the only way I got here? The Holy Spirit called, gathered, enlightened, sanctified, and kept me. If I can't come to this realization, how am I going to get other people to? If anybody else is going to call, gather, enlighten, sanctify, and keep the whole Christian church on earth, it's got to be the Spirit. So look there. 
And when he has promised to work, find peace. And where he says, chill, take a deep breath. And so it wasn't yet time for them to be out doing that. When it was, all of a sudden, man, I wish I could preach like Peter on Pentecost. But then again, I'm ordained and sent. So I can belittle myself, but God's working here. Not because of me, but because of him, his promise. Good. Good one. Anybody else? Questions or comments here? All right, let's pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. Thank you all for your time.